All right. Welcome, everybody, to the eighth installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. We are talking today about the future of genetic counseling, and I am joined by Amy Sturm and Aaron Gordon. We are going to be diving into so many topics today, just looking at the future of genetic counseling and going into different specialties and different areas that we are exploring. So our outline today, we're going to be doing like a 40 minute interview, and then we're going to be taking the last 15 minutes or so to answer your questions. So as we are talking about different topics as you're inspired as you want to participate in our conversation please use the q a box um, so you'll see the chat box the q a uh, any questions you have put in during our conversation so have them pop up um, during it so that we can answer your questions at the end this series is sponsored by Phenotips. They are the world's first genomic health record system, and they have designed software and services that make genetic professionals workflow easy and intuitive. They have tools like pedigree builders, standard symptom capture, and diagnostic insights. As many of us know, electronic health records are not built for genomics, though many of us have struggled using things and having them adapt to our workflow in genetics. So Phenotips has filled in this gap by providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. So in light of the pandemic, Phenotips is sponsoring this speaker series so that we can come together throughout the world and talk about topics that are really important, not only during the pandemic, but in these healthcare fields in general. So as I mentioned, I'm your host, Kira Deneen, for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today, a genetics podcast. And we were very excited last year to win the People's Choice Podcast Awards for the best 2020 science and medicine podcast. So if you enjoy genetic conversations that we have here, on the Phenotip Speaker Series. Definitely check out the show, DNA Today. We've had over 145 episodes and Amy was on one of those episodes. I forget which one. I want to say like one seven, like 75 or something a couple of years ago. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, we talked about like cardiac genetic counseling, which is so interesting. I learned so much in that episode. Um, so definitely feel free to check those out. I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor. So I want to introduce our guest, as I mentioned, we have Amy Sturm joining us. She's a genetic counselor and genomic medicine professor at Geisinger. We also have Aaron Gordon, the founder and president of Ripple Genetic Genetics Consulting. So thank you, Amy and Aaron, so much for coming on the Phenotip Speaker Series. I'm really excited for all of the different areas of the future of genetic counseling we're gonna be talking about today. Thanks for inviting us, really yeah. pleased to be here. And just to remind our audience, if you have questions throughout this, please use our Q&A box at the bottom and submit those questions. If you see other people's questions that you are really intrigued by, feel free to upvote those so that we can answer those at the end. And before I dive into my questions that I have, I want to shout out to Laura Hersher's paper, which inspired a lot of um, my questions in terms of what content we're going to get into. So if you're curious, you can check out that paper, Pondering the Future of Genetic Counseling in Adolescent Field Comes of Age. So we're also going to link to that um, in the blog post for this episode. So if you're really inspired by our conversations today, definitely uh, check that out. So I thought we could start out by talking about the development and use of digital tools in genetic counseling. So focusing on chatbots to begin with, where are we at in terms of the use of chatbots right now in genetic counseling? Amy, do you want to start out giving us a little perspective? I feel like Geisinger has a little bit of a expertise in this. Yeah, thanks, Kara. I'd be happy to. So um, it was 2007, um, shortly after I joined Geisinger, I think a couple weeks, 
um, that our chief scientific officer introduced me to a small startup, Clear Genetics, that was building chatbots to use for genetic counseling. And I remember during the first conversation with the CEO, Marianne Sneer, just immediately all these ideas that I could think about in the patient journey, you know, through learning genetic information, really over the course of their lifetime, where a digital tool like a chatbot could be utilized. Um, so at Geisinger, we've been working on co-development with Clear, now acquired by Invitae, and building out different use cases to test and see how well patients respond to them or not, and where we can use these different digital tools to hopefully increase the efficiency of genetic counseling practice, you know, take away kind of some of the repetitive tasks that we don't really want genetic counselors to be doing, or even genetic counselor assistants. Um, and also some patients prefer communicating in a digital format versus with a person, you know, quite frankly. So we're really interested in just testing all of these things, seeing how our patients respond to them. We've developed use cases for consent into MyCode, our biobank, which is a large community health initiative that returns results. We have developed one for family sharing so that a proband can share results with at-risk relatives. And then the at-risk relative get this cascade chatbot to go through with them the risk information for their familial variant and hopefully allow them to proceed with cascade testing, knowing more information about it. And then we also have developed use cases for follow-up and check-in with patients, um, screening in a prenatal setting, and we're excited to kind of pilot some additional ones as well. And I will say one thing that has been really interesting was when we started this co-development work, because Geisinger is in central Pennsylvania, that is a pretty rural part of the country. We had a lot of um, individuals who were kind of naysaying about whether this type of technology would be welcomed by our patient population. And so we did focus groups and we heard that actually, even from older individuals in their 50s and 60s, that they were open to receiving digital communications. And when we came to the actual clinical deployment to patients, we've seen that about 60% um, or so, give or take, are still uptaking the chatbot compared to a phone call. So it's been interesting. We're gonna keep studying this and keep developing new use cases and see how well they you know, do or don't work, but we're excited about the promise. Yeah, it's exciting to see just how it can be used. And as you said, certain tasks and very rudimentary conversations that genetic counselors are having over and over, where it's more of like a checkbox of like, okay, I just have to cover this piece of information. You sound like a robot. You're like, okay, I'm going through this spiel again, mm -hmm. where we can transition to say, okay, let's maximize our efficiency. And like, what, what do we want to spend the most time on versus how we can utilize this technology to step up and kind of fill in those gaps. I, was that some of that information presented at the last NSGC in person? Because it sounds familiar. I'm like, I remember hearing that older people, it was surprising how many of them were really engaging with the chatbots and like having like a really positive experience with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we presented some of our data so far at NSGC and the American Society of Human Genetics meeting, as well as the ACMG meeting, I think a couple years ago. And our um, first paper on the patient assessment of chatbots with our multiple focus groups of about 62 people, I think it was, was published in the Journal of Genetic Counseling. And we're really excited because um, I'm the PI of a grant at Geisinger received from NIH called Impact FH focused on familial hypercholesterolemia,
but we're going to be studying chatbots specifically for how they might be able to increase uptake of cascade testing for FH. And we even built in a module where the individual can order their own cascade test right within the chatbot after they go through really pre-test education that again would be something that can be very easily scripted, written by clinicians, um, and we feel, you know, hopeful that individuals will feel comfortable then proceeding to that next step of cascade testing. And of course, this can alleviate a lot of the barriers of cascade testing um, with family communication and geographical barriers, going into a clinic to get a blood draw, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, we're excited to see how hopefully um, patients respond well to that too. Yeah. And just, as you said, like the availability that so many people can utilize this. They don't have to come in person or even sounds like schedule like a telehealth consult that this is just available to them to be able to help them like understand this and then actually order some of the testing. Like one of the conversations that comes up while talking about chatbots and using technology with genetic counseling is well, how does that change the role of a genetic counselor? Many people that have been in the field for years, like, well, that's a big chunk of my job. Like, how, how is that going to change for me in terms of if we are all starting to use this technology, which I imagine that's how technology works. It starts with some people and then it expands out to others. How do you see, and Aaron, feel free to chime in with just how a genetic counselor's role is going to shift over the next few years as we start using chatbots and other type of technology that's, you know, kind of, I don't know if replacing is the right word, but really, you know, adding to what we usually do. Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen a tremendous uptick, certainly in the last year, but even over the last five years in patient interest in digital tools. And that doesn't just apply to genetics, but across the board, Patients are looking to take control of their health in different ways. They're using technology and tools to do that. And I think as genetic counselors, we need to think about what our role is and how we can evolve our perspective on how we relate to patients in order to meet the evolving need um, and the evolving approach that patients are taking to healthcare. So, um, you know, one way to think about that is trying to help patients using chatbots or other tools. When I was at Genome Medical, we had developed something called a genetic care navigator um, where patients engaged with um, uh, video content that was kind of piecemeal, doled out to patients based on how they were answering different questions. And that also led them to a point where um, that information went back to a genetic counselor for review. And then the test was authorized based on that. Um, starting with uh, carrier screening as an easy entry point to that. Um, but one of the things we had built into that that I think is really important is an es what I used to call an escape hatch for patients. And I think this is going back to your question, Kira, of how genetic counselors are going to evolve with this. We recognize, and I think we all have to recognize, that some patients really do need help. They're kind of emotionally struggling with the decision. They're confused by what their risks are or what, what's happening in their family. We want to make sure that we don't push everybody down a path that they're not necessarily comfortable with and they have the opportunity to ask the questions they have and that genetic counselors are there to provide that service when needed. The flip side of that is not everybody needs that. And we need to kind of help patients see, do I, am I good with this? Do I have more questions? And how do we 
create that conduit for a service when it's needed, whether it's via telehealth or you're scheduling an in-person appointment or you're chatting live with a genetic counselor so that the chat bot pushes you to live support. One way or another, I think there will always be some patients who have a greater need than what tools or technologies can offer. It will probably be over time, the minority as opposed to the majority. But I think that's really where genetic counselors will continue to come in. And when we think about uh, genetic counseling or genetics serving a larger and larger and larger population, that minority will be large, right? It will be relative to the size of the patient population we're serving right now. So it's just how we, I think how we continue to think about and be flexible in our mindset around who is our target population. Right now it's every patient at risk for a rare disease um, or a hereditary risk factor. In the future, it will be everybody seeking genetic testing of which a small portion of them will have additional needs that go beyond what technology can serve. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, go ahead, Amy. Well, I was gonna say to play off, you know, some of what Aaron said and your initial question, I hope it does change genetic counseling practice. I mean, I served as a clinical cardiovascular genetic counselor at Ohio State for 13 or 14 years. And, you know, thinking back about, right, the same repetitive conversation I had basically of informed consent for genetic testing or the stack of VUS results I had on my desk with all of the panels that we ordered to, you know, call out um, and communicate that type of information. Or, you know, even thinking about the lack of longitudinal follow-up that I think a lot of genetic counselors want with their patients, but don't actually have the time in their practice to do. And I think the digital tools will allow us to step away again from, you know, these repetitive tasks and um, some of the things that really can be communicated by a digital platform. Um, to some of the other things that Aaron said, you know, with certain patients really requiring genetic counseling, I couldn't agree more. And I'm really excited to see what the National Society of Genetic Counselors Pathways to Genetic Counselors Task Force ends up um, kind of piloting and implementing. Basically, the entire goal of that task force was to develop a set of screening questions to try to help individuals understand if they would really benefit from going the, down the path of meeting with a genetic counselor, or maybe they you know, feel comfortable with um, really where they're at with the genetic information or their genetic questions regarding their own health, their children's health, their family's health. And so I'm excited to see what comes out of that task force, hopefully over the next you know, year or so, so we can all keep our eyes peeled for that. And then the last thing I'll say is during some of our interviews um, and focus groups specifically to this impact FH study, we definitely heard people say the chatbot is a great tool. I don't think it's a standalone tool for some people. Some people are going to want to pick up that phone and talk to a clinician with questions or have a clinician order the test for them because they might not be comfortable doing that in a digital tool on their cell phone. So it's going to be personalized delivery of all of this. 
And I think another aspect to using these digital tools and having it so systematic is that patients will all receive the same information that there's not going to be, you know, a difference between, well, we sat in the session and the direction, the conversation went this way. And so, you know, I didn't talk as much about this topic as I wanted to, or, you know, everything's going to be a little bit different when it comes to when people are talking, but when you're talking to a chat bot, it's going to be the same every time. So I think there's also that advantage to it. And coming from, you know, being a prenatal genetic counselor, when I have a patient coming in for, you know, it's, it's their fourth child, it's their fifth pregnancy, whatever it is. It's like, they sit down, they're like, Hey, just so you know, like I've been through this many times, like, and I'm like, okay, great. And like, okay, what do you remember about this and touching base on it? You know, I'm sitting there, like, it's always great to talk to patients and especially if they're returning, but also does this patient really need to be sitting here with me? Would, would they benefit from a chat bot where they say, do you remember this part? Do you want to do the same testing as last time? Um, so there's certainly a lot of, you know, different ways. And I'm sure we've all been sitting there in sessions like, you know, this really could, I could just put, you know, a tape recorder on and like, just go in, in terms of like what I usually talk about. Um, so I think that's really, really good points and just where we're headed. And, you know, I like the, the concept that we do need to change our role and that's going to change. So looking at how we're going to be doing that and utilizing these tools as we're going in that direction, Another popular digital tool is the pedigree builders, and there's quite a few available to genetic counselors and other healthcare providers. How have you seen the adoption of these pedigree tools change genetic counseling, especially in terms of, you know, now that we're a year into the pandemic of more genetic counselors doing telehealth and working from home? Erin, um, I don't know if you wanted to start out with just your thoughts on how you've seen digital pedigree tools change genetic counseling. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking back, I've been a genetic counselor for 20 years um, and we had a very early version uh, that we used when I was in graduate school. And then I worked in several practices over the years that didn't use anything digital and we were just doing it on paper. Um, and, and I think, you know, the move towards something, towards a digital pedigree tool can make, has the potential to make genetic counseling so much more efficient. We currently, what a lot of practitioners do is send out their uh, family history questionnaire. It comes back either in advance of the appointment or with the patient, you're reviewing words on a page that are not stored digitally anywhere. And then you're reviewing it with the patient and redoing the pedigree. I see your mother had whatever at this age. Um, I think having um, digital pedigree tools that are linked to patient questionnaires have the potential to allow us to capture all of that information, build in risk assessment tools so that either from a chatbot perspective, it could be launched and the patient could be presented with their risk to say, based on the information you provided, your risk is X, Y, Z. Would you like to continue with this platform or schedule an appointment? Um, and, or if the patient is scheduled to come in, you know, that's already in front of the genetic counselor. They know where the patient stands. You know, they may have a couple of follow-up questions of things that, that maybe weren't answered or there was something unusual put into the questionnaire as we know happens sometimes. Um, but it, I think it has the potential to reduce a session by probably 15 minutes or more. And when we think about the need for efficiency in healthcare, 
the cost of healthcare rising, I think that is a tremendous asset. Yeah, definitely. I hope that more systems will fund, you know, buying these programs for their genetic counseling teams, because if they can, you know, there are a lot of different tools, some are probably even freely available, but then some that may even be able to be integrated into your EHR, um, where a patient can fill it out from home and wow, how beautiful would it be if it could, you know, populate a pedigree or maybe even integrate straight into the EHR or pull data from the EHR. I mean, this is like the dream come true, which I think is possible. We don't really have the perfect tool yet. Um, but it's very, very true. I mean, at Geisinger in a lot of our clinics, we have genetic counseling assistants getting on the phone and calling to get pedigrees ahead of time. That's helping the genetic counselor with efficiency, but it's still people time on the phone, working to get pedigree information that again, like Aaron said, maybe then re-reviewed by the genetic counselor in a pre-test setting. So there's still a lot that I think we could do to increase efficiency and use family history collection and risk assessment tools. And then that data is stored in a digital format. And then hopefully the patient can have that file and update it over time versus again, having to take, you know, man or woman power to fill all of that out over time. Yeah. yeah. Just to add one more thing to that, you know, I mentioned the integration of risk assessment, but I think the other real power is there are over 5,000 genetic diseases. Many are very rare. And what we know about them changes and evolves as we do more genetic testing. So we see a patient who has symptom XYZ, there's an exome done, and we find that this person has a mutation in a gene where only one of those features was associated previously. So having a digital tool that can be updated to amalgamate symptoms and provide a differential diagnosis, I think is also an incredible tool that will change the practice of genetic counseling. Like we're all limited by human knowledge right now. And the number of features that we can identify as being part of any syndrome at any given time. And I think as we see that diversifying, as we see increased variability, having digital tools to support that and integrating that with uh, patient data collection and pedigree creation would really change the field. Yeah, I think both of you are really capturing just like where we are headed with the future of genetic counseling and exciting to see that Phenotips is developing and has a lot of these tools already available. So like, you know, Amy, you were mentioning the EHR integration, pulling data from the EHR, family history questionnaire that auto-populates a pedigree. So, you know, the diagnostic suggestions in terms of like what symptoms we're seeing. Um, so I definitely recommend for genetic counselors just to play around with phenotypes and see like what there is there. Um, and just seeing that a lot of this can be done ahead of time. I mean, if you have a patient filling out a family history questionnaire at home, as opposed to you're suddenly asking them these questions in the office, We've all seen this, that when the, when people get to do that part of their homework at home, then we get a lot more information because they end up calling family members. They end up doing a little bit more of a conversation and discussion with people so that they're really getting as much information as possible, which is going to lead to better patient care. So certainly, you know, it all kind of goes into seeing how much information we have and then how we are able to process that and update it at later times. Um, and Aaron, you mentioned, you know, with rare diseases and whole exome sequencing just becoming like now a first line test for undiagnosed diseases. How, how has this 
led to more conversations in terms of like um, a whole exome sequencing medical value as a predictive test in terms of the general population. I mean, we've been talking about how as genetic counselors, we're going to be, you know, seeing that more and more people are getting genetic testing that, you know, wasn't doing that, you know, decade ago or so as just more is available in terms of that predictive testing. I mean, where are we at in terms of whole exome sequencing in that new, newer area of predictive testing, as opposed to someone has symptoms where they have an undiagnosed disease? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's two ways to look at that. One is I think we're going to whole exome sequencing much more quickly in patients with clinical features that are not super specific for a single genetic disorder. Um, so um, that could be the frontline test. It could be the second line test after you know a panel uh, that is targeted towards the features that they have that might come back negative. But I think the, the other element of that, Kira, is um, a movement towards whole exome sequencing for healthy individuals looking to identify health risks. Um, so this is a really interesting area and one that we've explored a little bit actually through some employer programs um, where we've worked with uh, when I was at Genome Medical, I should specify, um, we worked with some employers that were interested in offering uh, genetic testing to healthy individuals within their organizations. No information went back to the company. Everything was compliant under HIPAA, but they, they were looking at it, it as a wellness benefit. Um, so I think there's a lot of enthusiasm there. I think what's important for... Um, providers to understand and patients to understand is really what is the lab returning there? Uh, because in general, when we think about whole exome or whole genome sequencing, obviously the amount of data generated is enormous. Um, and there are so many variants of uncertain significance identified. Um, usually the report is tends to be limited to recessive diseases that are common in carrier screening, um, pharmacogenomics and, um, and I'm, I'm reluctant to call it the ACMG 59, but I think many listeners will recognize it in that way. Yes. Some, some modified list that relates to the ACMG 59 of actionable adult onset actionable diseases. Um, and labs in many cases will not actually interpret variants outside of those specified gene lists. And so I think it has great potential to provide insight to actionable adult onset diseases um, and pharmacogenomics, but I think considering going into those, what, what are the expectations of the patient? What are the expectations of uh, the provider and making sure that those are aligned with the test being ordered there are other ways to get at that information through healthy genomic sequencing panels, through pharmacogenomic testing, and in many cases, carrier testing off of a whole exome or a whole genome don't actually include triplet repeat disorders like fragile X, which would often be included in a carrier screen. So making sure again, that there's alignment on the expectations. If this is being done with reproductive planning being the primary motivation, this may not be the best panel so or the best test for that individual. So 
I think there is a lot of interest in that. I think there is a lot of opportunity and power, but it has to align with the motivations of the patient. Yeah, the other thing I would chime in on this topic is at Geisinger, um, one of my main roles is I co-direct what we call our MyCode Genomic Screening and Counseling Program. And essentially what that program is, is for the quarter of a million people who have enrolled in our biobank MyCode at Geisinger, we return actionable results back to patient participants who have enrolled in MyCode. And you know the major question for our program, which is a clinical program, but we perform research you know, surrounding really everything from the, I like to say the five prime to three prime end of this you know, program is what's the clinical utility? So there are a lot of questions. I mean, when you do kind of look at that ACMG 59 that Aaron referred to, we don't have data for all of these conditions if we screen people for pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants in the genes associated with that list and with those diseases in unselected healthy populations of patients, do they actually confer the same level of risk as in patients and families that are clinically ascertained? So we're hoping to help generate data to answer that question, um, you know, kind of about the penetrance and risk in these patients. We have published some of our data on clinical outcomes um, and clinical features and kind of next health behavior steps that we've seen for the tier one conditions. So hereditary breast ovarian cancer syndrome, Lynch syndrome, and familial hypercholesterolemia. And what we've seen so far, at least with that cohort, is that about 90% of people who had variants for those conditions didn't know about it from clinical genetic testing previously. Yet, um, our team did very thorough uh, chart reviews of our electronic health record. We did see prevalent family and personal history of these conditions, whether it be hypercholesterolemia or cancers, et cetera. And when we returned these results, we also saw a difference in pre-disclosure to post-disclosure risk management. And then the next step for that we saw new clinical diagnoses. So for FH, you know, new people with LDL cholesterol levels over 190, people being diagnosed with claudication or atherosclerosis. So I think we're beginning to see real promise um, with the tier one diseases. Now, we're also looking at other conditions like arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And we just published a recent paper in that um, population who have received results too close to about 100 patients. And if anyone wants to look at that, it's in circulation, genomic, and precision medicine. But we're finding much lower apparent disease risk in people who are getting ARBC variants. Now, we have more work to do because the population is a higher female um, population, and they are older. So there might be a survival bias in the patients that we're looking at in our program. But there's a lot of research to be done for all of these different conditions to be able to give genetic counselors the data that they need to counsel patients appropriately on what these risks even mean. And I'm really excited to see you know, what happens when the All of Us Research Program starts returning results, hopefully toward the end of this year. It's gonna be really interesting to, to see the learnings of that program too to help inform the field. Yeah, and it's just, sorry, go ahead, Erin. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I think Amy, a little bit of what you just said though speaks to our, our lack of ability to identify the right patients um, 
you know, we know there's been an underutilization of genetics for years. And you just mentioned that some of the patients in your cohort, when you go back, you do see that they had a family history um, and maybe were under-identified. And I think, you know, we recognize that we have not been identifying the right people or not been referring them to genetics as needed or ordering genetic testing as needed. There's so much data out there that supports, you know, 30% of patients with ovarian cancer are actually referred for genetic screening, should be everybody, you know, there's example after example in, in lots of different diseases. And I think that is an argument for population screening because I don't think we're magically gonna close that gap, right? We can, we can continue to point to what the risk factors are, but I, I think the chance that we're gonna get from you know, the, the small percentage of patients that we're actually capturing. And those are those who, you know, who can provide us with a family history and many people can't for any variety of reasons. So how do we identify those patients prospectively and then pair that with the data that Amy was referring to so that we can then counsel those individuals with pathogenic or likely pathogenic mutations appropriately so then they can take steps to um, improve their long-term health. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing about population genomic screening and that our, uh, this initial paper that we published in Genetics and Medicine really elucidated for us was population genomic screening is not a one size fits all at, you know, a certain age either. For example, our data showed us FH was a huge missed opportunity. I mean, so many of our patients that had been identified and then received their genetic risk variant from our program already had significant cardiovascular disease and atherosclerotic um, cardiovascular disease. And so if we could do population genomic screening and return results for FH at much younger ages, you know, firmly advocate that and hope that that would be um, acceptable to patients and families to undergo those types of programs. Because I, I totally agree, Erin. I mean, our data has showed us that we are consistently missing people with real genetic disease risk mm -hmm. and we need to do better. I think my point is mainly, you know, for some of these conditions, it's very hard to provide genetic counseling for them because you get this risk result. You're talking to a patient who has, you know, maybe they're middle-aged and they, they have no personal or family history of this condition. Mm -hmm. And so we have struggled with this and we've opted to tend to be more conservative, just, you know, in case there is some disease risk in these individuals. And so we still are recommending clinical screening, but then is that an overuse of the healthcare system? We don't really know for some of these conditions. So I, I, I know that you know, there's other programs like ours out there that are hoping to just generate more data that can really be used to help people understand what their real you know, risk might be. So then what would be some of the steps that we need to take in order to achieve population screening, I mean, obviously there's going to be so many different things. We've, we've talked about FH, we've talked about ovarian cancer, um, but what do we need to do in order to get to a point where that is becoming more standard of care? Is that going to look like newborn screening where there's a heel prick test and this is being added to newborn screening? Am I too far, like 50 years in the future? Like what, what do we need to do and how would you want that to look like? I don't know, Amy, if you wanted to start out with that. Yeah. I mean, I do think we need to talk to clinicians and talk to uh, people to hear, you know, what is their acceptability to this type of information? What would they need to want to undergo this test? 
Um, at Geisinger, we have a similar program. It's really more of a population healthy screening program where we've tried to integrate this in primary care with a, a few certain select primary care clinics. And the whole notion is that very easily, it's all built into Epic. The primary care physician can offer the pop health screening, you know, DNA test to their patients in a clinical way and um, consent them verbally and get that sent out with a blood test to get back essentially the same thing we're doing with my code in a research format, but as a clinical test. And not, you know, we only started this as a pilot for funding reasons, but also I don't think all primary care clinics would probably be open to doing this, you know, today. So again, what data do we need to generate to show the primary care providers, this information is important to your patient. They wanna do what's best for their patient. They're used to doing regular screening tests like cholesterol panels and checking blood pressure and you know mammograms, et cetera, but they need to see the value in the test. Um, of course, you can also go straight to the um, consumer, right? And so I, I think there's a lot of ways we're going to have to kind of attack this issue um, but I think at the end of the day, too, we have to show that there's value in doing this. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that also relates back to payment. So, I mean, I think we're conditioned, although we don't have socialized medicine, we, you know, the expectation in the U.S. is that your health insurance company will pay for your care or a portion of it if it is medically necessary. Right? Most people are not expecting to pay for their mammogram out of pocket. Uh, they may have a copay for it or coinsurance, but they're not expecting to pay for it in full. So if there's no coverage for healthy sequencing, I think there's going to be a perspective on the part of healthcare providers and the public that it is not medically necessary. So I think there's, there's a number of steps that need to happen in terms of research uh, and policy making that would influence our use of healthy sequencing. One is better understanding the data. Um, you know, what are the implications of positive results for the different genes that would be included? Um, what are the long-term outcomes of those individuals who receive healthy sequencing? Are they changing their behaviors? What are the recommended steps? Um, and what is the financial benefit of doing that? And then the next step is taking all of that data to payers uh, to try and convince them for, to um, include healthy screening and coverage. Because without those things, I mean, I, I think we would see a very low uptake. Yeah, we have to prove to insurance companies and you know other parts of healthcare to say like, this is why it's important and this is looking at the prevention side, if we can identify someone that has one of these disorders, look at the treatment versus, you know, the um, after someone's diagnosed. So prevention versus treatment and just like the cost, you know, fiscally of that, but also just on the patient's life and, and how that impacts human lives and families. I think cost, unfortunately, is a conversation that we often have to have and fighting with insurance companies and looking at, you know, how are we as a healthcare system going to handle this? Um, and I just saw a question pop up in the chat. Definitely feel free to pop in your questions in the Q&A box. We're gonna get to those at the end. So going along the lines of you know, cost of genetic testing, but also treatments, 
we've talked about rare diseases a couple of times, the cost for rare diseases for the treatment can be astronomical. I mean, it's very expensive if you have only a few people with that condition that are paying for a medication once it is developed. An example of this would be Spinraza. It's just an incredible drug that's helped the lives of people with SMA, but it costs over a million dollars. So that's such a limitation in terms of people's access to you know, this life-altering drug. It's creating a disparity in terms of the people that can receive this treatment how can genetic counselors be more involved with helping to address this disparity? I mean, just with costs of treatment kind of, but also the other areas of cost that we've talked about. Amy, do you have thoughts to start us out? Yeah, I mean, even, you know, I was thinking about to the previous question, the cost of whole genome sequencing. You know, if you want to be direct to consumer and kind of initiate that order yourself and costs have drastically dropped for sequencing. And you know, I found one company that has 299 for their 36 or 30x, excuse me, whole genome sequencing test and 999 for their 100x. Okay, great. But we already know there's a major health disparity there between people who can access even something like that. So when you bring up the drug for SMA and SMA affects everyone, no matter where you fall on the line of how much money you make per year. So, I mean, genetic counselors are great advocates. I think we can work with advocacy organizations. I know many of the advocacy organizations go straight to Capitol Hill to fight for access for everyone with these conditions, not the ones, not just the ones that can afford it. Um, so I think that there are probably ways that we can advocate on behalf of our patients um, that are underinsured, uninsured, do not have the financial means to access these types of medications. Um, I don't know if Aaron has more concrete ideas, but I think a lot of advocacy individually with your patient and your family um, needs to happen, but then also advocacy, I think partnering with um, patient advocacy organizations in Washington, D.C. can be really important, too. Yeah, I think um, the, it's so important to consider the full equation here, right? Um, because the cost of caring for an individual with SMA is astronomical, right? So the cost of the drug is very expensive, but the cost of care, the cost of uh, parental time away from work, right? It's not simply, okay, this child is going to go to see a specialist X number of times a year. There's home health, there's ventilators there's wheelchairs, there's other adaptive medical equipment. And then who's taking this individual to all those doctor's appointments? Who's providing care? How are they contributing to the workforce in the way that they would have otherwise? Um, so the full picture of caring for an individual with SMA and taking all of that into account, and I have no doubt that the data is out there, especially for SMA because, um, you know, the drug is out and I, there are payers paying for that. But I think it's so important as genetic counselors that we continue to advocate for those patients and take into account those other pieces, right? It, it's, it's not as simple as the cost of the drug. It's how does that, the cost of that drug decrease the cost of care for that individual, decrease or increase the amount of work time and productivity for their caregivers, as well as increase the 
societal contributions for that individual with SMA over the course of their now much longer lifetime, right? There are so many different factors that go into that. Um, and I think raising awareness of that among the genetic counseling community so we can best advocate for our patients. And, and as Amy said, partnering with advocacy organizations and partnering with the drug companies who are frankly taking a risk to invest in rare disease, to help patients with rare disease, clearly a shared mission and looking for opportunities to work closely with those organizations to forward that cause uh, is something that genetic counselors can do. Yeah, I think that's beautifully stated and just that genetic counselors be, can contribute to all of these different areas and have people connecting so that we can be having these conversations. So reaching out in terms of advocacy to these different groups and saying, okay, how can we brainstorm together and bring all our skills to say, where are these gaps? How can we help? And, you know, looking at the big picture that yes, a million dollars, that's a lot of money for most people, but then looking at, okay, well, what is the lifetime cost of SMA and looking at those other factors like caregivers time and, you know, either hiring someone for that or, a parent or family member that is not able to work because of that or has to work less. Mm -hmm. um, we have a couple things popping up in the chat that I want to pop to. Um, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit for this just because of time. Um, but someone writes, as you alluded, there is no one model that fits all. And we could think of approaches as age specific genetic risk factors, certain genetic risks that could be more important or appropriate at certain ages while keeping patient autonomy in mind. The use of technology would certainly need to play a notable role as we branch out to providing genetic counseling for common diagnoses. What are your thoughts about how to design such programs within the very fragmented United States healthcare system where we have millions of people without any coverage at this time. And I know we've kind of talked about, um, you know, this conversation, anything else to add, um, you know, looking at just how to help people that do not have adequate healthcare coverage for what they need. Well, and uh, the other thing I was thinking, as you said that, Kara, when I heard coverage, I was also even thinking about internet access, right? Because, I mean, we, we have patients who have no internet access. So we can't really send them a chatbot. I mean, it's just not going to work. And we can't send them an electronic family history form because they don't have internet access. So again, um, I think genetic counselors are amazing advocates uh, thinking about some of the ways that we need to improve health for all. Um, even in, right, coming down to access to healthcare, access to internet, because we can't only develop tools um, that are only going to really be helpful to certain segments of the population. Um, so I, that's all I really have to add on that point, but I was thinking too about the internet access. I'll just add, I, I think it goes back to the question, particularly as we think about population screening, of how we generate that data and how we convince providers and payers of the value. So when we were talking, we I, I feel like we kind of skipped to payers, but providers are a really critical component of this. Everyone from the ER physician who may treat the common cold because patients don't have health insurance and don't have a primary care physician to, um, to primary care, how do we convince them, how do we generate the data and then use that to convince them of the value of genetics in identifying risk factors for common disease so we can be more proactive about it 
But then it's also making sure that Medicaid covers it, that um, that other that all of the HCAs cover it. I think we need to make sure that um, that coverage becomes equitable, uh, so that it's not just certain people, and that access can be reached through any mechanism. But that is going to take a system-wide initiative. Um, and that's only going to be driven by data. Frankly, I don't think we're there yet. I hope, you know, I know Geisinger is generating some of that data. I think many of the other health systems that are working on population health will cumulatively get to that point. But I think that's still several years off, but we should be planning for how does this become a nationwide rollout? How do we account for those discrepancies in access, both on a healthcare provider level, on a payer level, on a connectivity level. Uh, so there's lots of factors there, but I think the starting point is really the data. Yeah, and to that point where we do have data is to show the value of genetic counseling. And so thinking about access, we know there are disparities about access to genetic counseling too. Um, we've definitely seen publications to that effect that minorities do not have the same access to genetic counseling. Um, as majority populations. And we do have a bill, the Access to Genetic Counselors um, Act, and the new number in our newest Congress is HR 2144. And you know, this would improve access to genetic counseling for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, again, just to make sure that hopefully all individuals have a level playing field with being able to access the genetic counselor who oftentimes is that healthcare provider who helps the person get on you know, their genetic personalized care plan that they need. And so wanted to make sure we have a shout out. We're advocating, we're building our grassroots efforts. So please join us in advocating for the Access to Genetic Counselor Services Act. Um, and I saw recently, and I don't know if it was the listserv or some email, maybe from NSGC directly, that there is something that genetic counselors can join kind of the later half of May. Um, I don't have the details in front of me, but certainly we can add that to the blog post for this episode um, because, you know, it's very important that we do, you know, support HR 2144 and having that is going to lead to increased access, as Amy was saying there. Erin, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, just to mention that although that would provide um, payment through Medicare, I think it's important to note that a lot of commercial payers follow the guide of Medicare. And so that could, in addition to directly impacting Medicare, could actually impact the practices of many other payers around the country. And so, so valuable from many different perspectives. Yeah, yeah certainly. And Kira, that's right. We're going to have virtual Hill visits. Um, very exciting. You know, we might not be able to go straight to Washington, D.C., but hopefully soon enough we will. So we're going to be having members meet with their members of Congress virtually. And we would love, um, you know, just as many people as possible to step up and do that. Yeah, certainly. And we'll include the links to that since I don't have all the information in front of me. Um, so that's something that genetic counselors, that's a way that you can directly be involved in support. Um, we have a question coming in with the emergence of population screening and polygenic risk scores and thinking about scalability of genetics to a broader patient population. I'm curious to see how you see the genetic counseling workforce changing in the years to come. Will we see more GCs working the non-traditional roles, which is a question I was also thinking of, of we've had really the big three areas of prenatal, pediatric, and cancer. 
but that's really shifting. Um, even like, you know, Amy with cardiac genetics, that's seemed to be a big area of the pie that's been growing. What areas do we see that are also growing or is that going to change where we're not even going to have that term of non-traditional anymore of the big three areas? Do we see that that's already outdated? Is it about to be outdated? I think it's outdated. I think that, um, you know, what's traditional anymore? Genetic counselors are doing so many more things and have already integrated in so many more areas beyond really our foundations of prenatal and cancer in pediatrics, which we're we are still so very needed in those areas. Um, but I mean, right, cardiovascular genetic counseling has been around now for my goodness, 15 years, I think for those of us who really kind of started working in that space. Um, and neurogenetics, uh, pharmacogenetics, population screening, which we've talked a lot about today. And I think the role has evolved so much for all of us that we just need to throw the word non-traditional out the window. I think we've talked about that for a while and we're all genetic counselors. We're all doing very similar things in different areas. Um, as far as polygenic scores, I'm really excited about the promise of those to identify even more individuals who have very significant genetic risk. I think genetic counselors can lead the integration of polygenic scores into the clinic and hopefully work really closely with primary care and specialists, just as we have for Mendelian disease risk. Um, but I think we really need to get primary care physicians on board for things like pharmacogenomics and polygenic risk scores because these scores could potentially apply to every single patient. And so we're going to need to help our primary care clinicians in the delivery of this. And I think genetic counselors are really well poised to help lead that integration. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think um, one, I, I started in neurogenetics. So I started in a non-traditional role and I have continued to work in very non-traditional roles um, over the course of my career. Um, so I think throwing out that term would be helpful for um, better integrating the entire genetic counseling community and kind of taking out some of those walls that have come up. We've seen a tremendous growth in genetic counselors working outside of traditional clinical settings. So in laboratory settings, in research settings, in, in pharmaceutical companies and other roles over the years. And I think that's really a testament to the versatility of our skill set and what we bring to the table. Um, with respect to, um, I just forgot my train of thought. Um, with respect to how we can break down some of those barriers um, and continue to support the changing workforce, I think we will see a movement towards more and more physicians embracing genetics. Um, and I, I think going back to the idea of tools that we talked about earlier, I don't think we always need a genetic counselor there for a pre-test counseling session, but I do think we wanna create work to have genetic counselors and physicians where they are there to support physicians who are routinely using genetics. That may not mean meeting with the patient themselves, but creating a relationship or a point of contact within a health system where that physician feels like this is my genetic counselor who I can reach out to. I trust them. I rely on the guidance they provide and they're there to phone a friend, right? So that they can guide the practice because as the use of genetics grows, 
ideally through the use of, of tools and technology, the primary care physician, the cardiologist, the neurologist, the ophthalmologist, all of these specialists are going to be using genetics in their practice. And there is no way they're going to refer every single patient they see to a genetic counselor. And we can't necessarily support that population at this point, given the size of the genetic counseling uh, workforce. So create changing that relationship so that we're there to support them so that we can help them triage, help them identify patients who might need a deeper level of care, a greater level of expertise that the genetic counselor can offer, I think is going to be absolutely essential. Yeah, and I think as more physicians and other healthcare providers are using genetics, it just becomes more useful for them to have us as a resource. And so for us to be more valued and just used in terms of understanding like who needs genetic counseling and like, what do they need? Um, we have a couple minutes left. I don't know if we'll get to all the questions, um, but our next one is, could you discuss the role of GCs as patient navigators if we are trending towards the genetic counseling across the lifespan? So it's kind of a topic we've been talking about a bit. Um, Amy, how do you see this in terms of genetic counselors having more of that patient navigator role and having being more involved with people throughout their lives and not just at certain points? Yeah, I, I love this idea. I think it's something that I hope we can actualize, whether it's kind of your genetic counselor, you know, um, and this makes me wonder, will we um, kind of transition to be masters of all and generalists again, which stresses me out because I think that leads toward a master's of none um, because I don't feel confident that I could really provide genetic counseling for everything across the lifespan. So how do we basically design a system? And it is very well probably going to be different from again, healthcare system to healthcare system, depending on what resources you have, but where the individual does not access a genetic counselor just once. Um, you know, we've had people receive a MyCode result who based on chart review, we saw they ended up not discussing that with our genomic counseling team. They discussed it with the prenatal genetic counselor because guess what? They happened to just have a visit with that genetic counselor because of their pregnancy and it came up almost as a, hey, side note. So these types of things tend to happen and I think we need to think about structures and systems to better support people as they navigate genetics throughout their lifetime. Um, we are really interested in this concept of patient navigation because when a person gets their risk result from my code, they might be dealing with, and we've seen all of this, a family member's death, their own chronic condition, you know, a global pandemic. Okay, so how do we make sure we set up a system that can check in on them over time? And if we're returning a result to an 18 year old for BRCA, that they actually do start, you know, getting their breast MRIs at 25. So it's going to have to be attacked, I think, from many different sides, not just a genetic counselor who serves as a patient navigator, because I don't think that's scalable. So again, it kind of makes me come back to digital tools. You know, we've been building in genomic indicators into Epic that are meant to automate health maintenance topics that go to the primary care physician again, so that that doctor will get a notice that when that patient comes in to see them, um, that they hopefully will get that MRI ordered at the right time. We know there's gonna be you know, issues with that, with interoperability of healthcare records as well, but um, I think testing whether genetic counselors as an intervention with patient navigation is actually one of the first steps. 
Um, hopefully we have some excited genetic counselor researchers out there listening to this podcast who could even do some trials to look at patient navigation compared to usual care or other interventions to again, see how these interventions could help people kind of follow on the screening and surveillance recommendations we give them, again, to, to generate the data and the value of that, because at the end of the day, we will need to get paid for delivering that service too. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I think we could go on for hours about this. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Um, but thank you so much, Amy and Aaron, for coming on and just sharing so much insight of looking at the future, but also where we are now and helping us get to where we want to be as genetic counselors and with the field. So you'll, everybody, you'll see a feedback link in your browser once this webinar ends. Please take a minute to fill it out and offer your feedback. And you can also pick topics that you would like to see in our upcoming sessions of the Phenotype Speaker Series. You'll also receive a email with the feedback link in case you miss after this or you're headed to another meeting. The email is going to include a link to register for our May 19th next episode of this, of the speaker series. It's going to be about integrating genomics into routine clinical practice. Uh, so definitely check that out. You can go directly to phenotypes.com to look at more information about the speaker series. Just click the resources tab and it will pop up on the drop down menu. And all the installments of the Phenotype speaker series for the past almost year are available on there to stream. So if there's something you want to watch back or if there's an installment you missed, definitely check that out at phenotips.com. And next, our again, our next webinar is integrating genomics into routine clinical practice on May 19th. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, um, check out my podcast. It's DNA Today on social media and podcast players, or go directly to dnapodcast.com. So thank you again, Amy and Aaron, for coming on. It was so interesting to pick your brains and all of these topics. We covered a lot of information. So I just really want to thank both of you for taking the time to talk with me about all these really interesting topics that we're just headed into with genetic counseling. Well, thanks for being our great host today, Kira. Um, we're going to have to do it again because I feel like I think so. Like so, yep. Bookmark the questions we didn't get to, right? <laughs> thanks so much for having us. All right. Thank you everybody for tuning in. It's been lovely having you and we'll see you on May 19th for our next webinar.